Hello and welcome back to episode 40 of Double Reel. This is the third part of our monthly magazine podcast for the discerning film nerd. Hopefully you've caught up with the first two parts which came out in the past couple of weeks. If not, please do go back to your app, download them and have a listen. Part one is Double Reel Monthly with news, reviews of new releases including Christopher Nolan's new film Oppenheimer, Barbie and Heart of Stone. My monthly David Cronenberg film which was Cosmopolis and James's look at a Nick Cage film picked at random. Part 2 was the regular features episode including our classics and recommended feature Rio Bravo, our hidden gem American Maid, our one that got away John Borman's Lord of the Rings, and a remake Hate Watch of Conan the Barbarian. Now in our final part for this month we give you the big conversation where we talk about a topic from the film world in more detail. First of all a warm welcome back to my co-host James Adamson. Welcome James. Thank you very much. I'm glad to be back. Let's get into it. So the subject for this big conversation is Pitch Me a Blockbuster. Um, what we're going to do is uh, we've just gone away, put our thinking caps on and come up with some ideas of what we think would make good big movies. Not necessarily giant comic book blockbuster movies, but the kind of movies that the, the, the mainstream studios would put out with the aim of making a fair bit of money and might be sort of an interesting uh, addition to what gets shown like in the summer, the big, the big movie periods. Um, and I guess the reason for this is that it's not been a great year for blockbusters, mate, hasn't it? They don't seem to be doing very well. The, the comic book films which have dominated sort of mainstream cinema for years seem to be struggling. And it seems like it's uh, a bit of a crossroads where someone at least should be thinking, what kind of film should we be putting out? And this is just us learning our opinion. I mean, what are your thoughts, mate, on why the current like slate of big movies isn't doing very well? So I don't. I don't really know because I'm still excited for comic book films and that kind of thing. But I think a lot of it is to do with just how bad they've been. Um, It used to be that DC would make shit films, but the Marvel ones were good. So it was all fine for the blockbuster. There'd be four or five massive films every year that you would happily go and see. And I know Star Wars, those last three films were awful, but you're still going to go see Star Wars, regardless of how bad the films are. Star Wars is that big that you'll go and see it. But this year it feels like definitely because of the drop in quality from marvel that i just don't think people are interested i don't not even necessarily the quality in the actual film itself because i was excited for the black widow film and it was shit i like the black widow character but now it's like they've kind of dipped into tv series and then they're making films that about characters that i don't really care about and then obviously d fuck no fuck knows what goes on in dc's brain because why have they made a film about the blue beetle does yeah, mean, I mean it's and 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 it's another origin story. I'm so fucking over origin stories. I mean, the thing is, there's there's a lot to be said, right, for the fact that this is. I think this is the first time they've had a um, uh, a Hispanic central character in a comic book film, and they've got some good stuff going with his family, and it's Manny from Cobra Kai, which I like. All of which is is good, but sometimes I wonder if the big studios use that as a crutch for their lack of imagination these days, because it's like, yeah, good, do that. That sounds brilliant. Have a, have a more people of colour and diverse people in, in the main roles for a new character, but have you not got any fucking good characters? Do you know what I mean? Because well, Blue Beetle is like, it feels like they've, they're scraping down the back of the sofa of, of it's like, oh, have we got any superheroes left to do? Oh, let's look in the drawer and see what's left, which is a bloody shame, because it's just like a, okay. Do you know what would have been great? Is if they cast, I don't know how to say his name, I know it begins with an X, but I'll just sound like I voted for Brexit if I try and say it. But, could he have not replaced Ezra Miller as the Flash? Uh, I think that would be a tremendous idea. Do you know he's, what I mean? He's like, spot on. He's, he's spot a, on. He's a good actor. I like him in Cobra Kai. And 
and a bunch I, of different a bunch of different people have been the Flash as well in DC's history. What makes me think of how well this was done with my? I know we're not even getting into the fucking juicy bit of what we're going to get into. I suppose we're giving a little bit of kind kind of context here. But do you remember how they introduced Tom Holland Spider Man? It basically they sort of dropped him into the middle of Civil War, didn't they? Exactly, and it was oh, the Spider Man. He's already doing all the backflips, and he's got all the webs, and he's got the good suit and all the gear. Yeah, and Tony Stark kind of hooked him up. And then his first film, um, Homecoming, a year later, it was just... It was not an origin story. It was just, he's hiding his identity and he's the friendly neighbourhood Spider-Man and he gets involved in this... Uh, we'll try stopping this criminal in a, in Brooklyn. No, he's not from Brooklyn, in Queens. Just yeah. Like with a, with a Michael Keaton's character. So, you know, it, was, it wasn't like he got bitten by the spider. And I, I don't mind the origin story because there's an origin story in Spider-Man um, Into the Spider-Verse. But it was so different. It's, and... it's, it's different. I mean, I mean, Batman Begins has an origin story of Batman, but Nolan, well, because Nolan likes to do flashbacks and play around with time, it didn't feel like you were... Because the problem with an origin story is, apart from the fact that you've seen it so many times before, is that you, you're waiting almost an entire film for the superhero to be the superhero that you turned up to see. And probably the worst one for that, which... And the film's, the film's actually fine. And I like the character. I think they could have done more with Captain Marvel. And I don't mind Brie Larson. I know she can be a bit edgy in interviews and stuff. But that film was fine, except that she doesn't actually become full-on Captain Marvel until like the last three minutes of the film. Yep. And it's like, come on! I, I, we've come to see fucking Captain Marvel. The titles in the in you know the the, the names in the title, and you know I, I'm I'm so sick of seeing them having half their powers or still getting used to it and it's exactly the same narrative arc but i mean the, but i think i think the issue is is that the if there was a problem with the comic book domination of blockbusters over the past decade it's not the fault that not necessarily the fault in itself of of you know marvel or anyone on but it's just like the studios were not doing anything else it was, it was very, very difficult for you to come up with anything else. And and this past couple of years has shown that they seem to have lost the ability to do anything else because the anything else that they've tried over the past couple of years has been bringing Indiana Jones back and, um, uh, you know, a Haunted Mansion film. And it's like, wow, you really don't have any fucking new ideas, do you? And it's the, it's not, it's the lack of ideas you know, we 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 whinge about this in in the features episode every month about the lack of ideas in the in the boardroom bringing out remakes, but the lack of ideas means that they're making these films just really run of the mill. And the other problem that they have is they're costing two hundred million dollars to make because they're just really expensive to make. They're not, you know, and they're, they're managing to do that without paying the special effects people properly, or pay the writers properly, or pay the actors properly. So fuck knows where the money's going. But they're costing an absolute ton of money to make, and it's, I think maybe it's, would you call maybe you'd call it a fragile recovery from COVID? Is that people aren't just turning up in droves to any old film, right? So they're spending two hundred million dollars on a movie, and they're not making the money back. Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny cost nearly three hundred million dollars to make, and didn't even make Jesus that at the box office. Christ. And I know we talked about um, Mission Impossible: Dead Reckoning. A, that's a good film. I don't have any complaints about them continuing to do that. But that those films don't normally cost that much. If you listen to Christopher McQuarrie in interviews, he he says he's not Nolan. They're not Marvel. They they can't bank on making a billion dollars every film. Um, they are you know they're a little bit more mid budget and they they have to kind of work work that way. Now mid budget is a bit of a but their films usually cost a good deal less than two hundred million dollars or at least under. 
and they spent 291 because of COVID. But normally, and I bet you this happens with Dead Reckoning Part 2, they'll come in under that so they make their money. But all of the all the Pixar animations, all the, the Marvel blockbusters, the Star Wars, they're costing 200. I think Force Awakens cost like $400 million to make. They're, co- they're costing so much money to make because they're still walking around like they just have to open their pockets and money's going to fall into them. And it's much harder now and they don't seem to get it. Yeah. I mean, do you have some thoughts on why it's harder for, for to, to get the audience out to the film these days? Well, that was going to be my next point uh, with regards to not just the drop in quality or the lack of interest and just the kind of, you know, the kind of same films that we're getting over and over again. You know, they, yeah. they, if you want to introduce Blue Beetle, do a proper Justice League film and have Blue Beetle come in that way or something like that. But that's by the by. My next point was going to be that I think people have just got a bit lazy. You know what I mean? Like, I know, I know in myself, if it's a choice between going to the cinema and spending £30 to go with the missus and get a thing of popcorn, or waiting for it to come out in like two months' time and buy it for a tenner, and just sit on your sofa, you be comfortable, I don't need to get anyone to look after the dogs, I've got a pretty nice telly, I can watch it on a relatively big screen, not as big as the cinema, it has to be like, it has to be a big film like Oppenheimer, or a film that I think, yep, I think that's going to be worth seeing at the cinema, for me to think, yeah, I need to go to the cinema and watch this mm. blockbuster. So I think it needs a it needs a shake up in terms of these new ideas or you know solid ideas. You know, we no one wants to watch you know these 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 really these bad films. No one no one wanted Shazam two. No one wanted you know what I mean. So I think it's. I think it's a combination of since COVID and everyone's just kind of used to getting all of their meat, like their films, TV shows and stuff through just be by being at home. I think that's also a contributing factor and therefore it's harder to get bums in seats with yeah. films that, you know, that we have effectively seen before a million times. Yeah, I mean, I mean, do you think perhaps the the, the superhero sort of boom since, you know, Marvel sort of kicked in? And and the fact that Star Wars was still knocking around and such like, do you think that perhaps masked from the studio the fact that the audience is changing? Because it's not. I mean, I know COVID was a big part of that, but there's been there's been competition for eyeballs from other forms of media for a while now. Mm. And and do you think perhaps without the without the comic book movies, they might have had this crisis ten years ago? Maybe, yeah, I think because because there's plenty of ways to to do other things and watch other things at home, and and the fact that Marvel was it was an event, it, it still got people out to the cinema. Maybe. Yes, I th- I think that's I think that's a fair thing to speculate, and I'm not sure if it would have been ten years ago. I think it would have been maybe. Af- I th- I'm surprised that it didn't happen straight after um, Avengers Endgame, mm-hmm. because. Well, we all we all got stuck in time for a couple of years, didn't we? Because of COVID, exactly. basically. That's um, you know, it, it, it's just it, it feels like a lot of reality has kind of landed on the film industry at once, hasn't it? Yeah. So, I mean, we've had situations like this before. I mean, the '60s looked like a big crisis for um, uh, the studios because they they'd lost touch with their audience, and there were a lot of old guys like running the studios who no longer had the knack for understanding what was going to work with an audience. And in the 50s, they had, you know, shit television. What the fuck do we do? Do you know what I mean? And in the 80s, you had the VCR. And I've ram- I've rambled sort of a little bit about this in the past. They, they go through these periods, don't they, of, oh, shit, what do we do now? And 
every time up to now, someone's come up with something. Someone's come up with a way to get people to keep going to the cinema. Um, it's obviously up to, you know, bigger brains than ours, people who work, you know, in the industry to to come up with this idea. But I think what we're positing here, what the 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 big conversation for this month is going to be about is you can still get people out with interesting films because Barbie's done well, Oppenheimer's done well. So our idea is whatever they got to try and do, they need to make films that people want to watch. Um, so why don't we have a go? Why don't we pitch a couple of blockbusters and see if they sound like good ideas for films? Yeah? Yes, sir. So a couple of things that I was going to um, suggest. One is... Uh, the, the format's going to be fairly simple for the audience. Uh, you know, one of us is going to pitch an idea for a blockbuster. We'll talk it through. Then the other one will pitch one, and then you know, repeat. Probably no more than a couple, unless we've got a bunch of ideas. We can you know throw them around, um, and we'll sort of say, look, okay, would that work better as a TV series? Is that going to find an audience? What kind of audience is it going to find? The only real restriction that I kind of su- suggested on this was none of these films can cost more than a hundred million dollars to make, and if possible, less because. I just don't think it's realistic in this environment for these films to be costing tons of money. And I don't think they need to. Because Barbie didn't cost 200 million. I mean, it cost 150, but it, it didn't need to cost, you know, it cost less than The Haunted Mansion. And look at the difference in box office performance. And, 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 and Oppenheimer cost 100 million. Now, if someone who can genuinely get people's bums on seats wants to spend that kind of money, like Nolan or James Cameron, these big films, they can they can spend $200 million if they want, but on their heads be it, if it fucks up, like most of the blockbusters that cost that, you know, fucked, you know, fucked up this summer, we're going to say, we're going to try and find more cost-effective, and we'll probably find some genres that are more cost-effective as well, but we're going to make more cost-effective films than that. Um, other than that, it's really going to be a case of, what's going to work what's going to find the audience um <clears throat> now one th- one thing i thought mate the we've we've talked a lot about how like the you know the, the audience watching things has changed and some of the younger people uh maybe are less you know dedicated to the cinema than others but what's been interesting since covid and this is this is us based data it might not be the same in every country but what gets generally known as gen z which is sort of everyone a year or two younger than you onwards right are the people who are going to the cinema the most at the moment. They're the most regular cinema goers of any demographic. Does that surprise you? Yeah, it does a little bit. Um, I feel like it would have been much more, not maybe not boomers, but I know people maybe my age and above might still go to the cinema, but I didn't think it would be Gen Z. Yeah, it's, which, it's just interesting. And, and the first thing I thought is, I mean, look, you're... Your age is slightly quirky because you're you're either like at you're like on the cusp. If this was a horoscope, you're like you're slightly too young to be classed as a millennial, but slightly too old to be classed as Gen Z. Generally speaking, yeah. Gen Z is people from like ninety seven, ninety eight onwards, which you're just out. So, I mean, but do you feel like you're in that group in terms of tastes and lifestyle and 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 media that you can see in? Like, I don't know because I, I sort of remember the early two thousands. Yeah, like I, I remember nine eleven. I know that's like an indication of like like my memory starting, but that was two thousand and one. So I, I, that's like kind of like my formative years. I know that's a very bad re- not reference for example, but like yeah. I do remember that time in my life. So yeah, I remember all like get, I remember when we only had three TV channels, and then we got Sky, and we had about six hundred channels. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that kind of time in my life. Yeah, um, 
But 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 any event, this is always one of these things. The younger generation comes along, and they're a complete mystery to the boardroom of entertainment media companies, and they they cast around, oh, how do we do this? And you can see some films that have been aimed directly at Gen Z lately, and a lot of them are really quite cringeworthy. Some of them have worked, but it's not something that the film industry does well. So one of the things I, when I was looking this up was, going, what kind of films are Gen Z watching? Because are we going to have a challenge pitching uh, a film to Gen Z? Do you know what I mean? And I found some quite interesting answers, right? So this is a Reddit thread, but basically some posed this exact question on Reddit. So I went, all right, what do they say? Gen Z, what are your favorite movies? Um, and it's someone going, look, I'm looking to potentially put on a movie all-nighter for 18 years old and under, um, a non-profit indie cinema, but I don't know what Gen Z watch. What sort of films do you watch? What films would people come and see if I put them on? I thought, okay, here we go. Are these going to be like, are there going to be loads of films that I don't, so it's people who respond to the movies Reddit. So maybe it's people who are more film fans anyway. But here's what Gen Z are watching on this list. The Before Trilogy. Uh, obviously Avengers Infinity War and Endgame. Mad Max Fury Road. La La Land. The Lighthouse. Her. Collateral. Finding Nemo. Uh, Dawn of the Planet of the Apes. Martha Marcy May Marlene. Drive. Okay. Last Night in Soho. Her. The Florida Project. Uncut Gems. Belfast. The Green Knight. Nightcrawl. It's like, oh, do you know what films they watch? They watch good films. That's it. Collateral's are really interesting because there's a bunch, you know, how these threads develop. Oh, Collateral's amazing. That's not made by Gen Z. That wasn't aimed at Gen Z, right? Michael Mann is 80. He was like 60-something when he, when, he, when he directed that. The two leads were both at least in their 30s or 40s when they made it. I mean, Jamie Foxx is a cab driver, so maybe the gig economy bit was relatable to Gen Z, but mainly it was just good thriller, LA at night, Michael Mann knows his shit when he's on form. We'll watch this movie. So what's quite interesting is that I sit, I sat there wondering if, if this was going to be some unpickable mystery for me to kind of pitch a film at Gen Z, but actually it's there are some things that are maybe too much aimed at an older audience that you need to be mindful of. You know, best exotic marigold hotel type movies are not going to get Gen Z out, and we knew that. But it's like you've probably got a fighting chance if you just have a good movie. I mean, did you have any thoughts of your own about what Gen Z watches? Not really. I mean, I'm not entirely surprised because I imagine a lot of Gen Z kids just go on Netflix or whatever and just think, oh, what's that film? Do you know I mean, the same way that I'll go on Netflix and think, oh, that film's from the 1960s, but is it a good plot? You know, I've, I've, I've watched some Hitchcock and that was like 40... 40, 50 years before I was born. So I'm mm-hmm. not entirely surprised. But yeah, I think I just kind of went, nah, they're just going to be watching Star Wars and Avengers and all that kind of stuff. So it's good to see that they're branching out. Yeah. So I think that one of the one of the rules is going to be, look, if this is if we're trying to get Gen Z in the audience, I don't think we should try too hard to make it about Gen Z characters necessarily or something that only Gen Z do. Let's not make this about, you know, about a TikToker who's... Um, you know, working three jobs and and doing stuff with other Gen Zers. Do you know what I mean? It's like because it's just going to sound like you know middle aged people trying to do youth youth entertainment, right? Certainly me, but I think you're a bit you're obviously a bit closer. Um, but th- that that was interesting. What sort of what sort of genres do you think um, blockbusters, you know, big successful mainstream films are going to be at the moment? What sort of genres do you think are going to work best? I think. It's hard. It's hard to pinpoint because of how disastrous the kind of last twelve months have been. 
But you obviously have your sci-fi, your action, your comic book, and horror make quite a lot of money. Yeah, doesn't it? Horror if for you, sure. If you do it for a tenner and like do what? What did Paranormal Activity cost? About eighty thousand. Well, that's the thing with horror is that I'm, I'm going to do a little bit about horror later. I'm going to, I'm going to delve into it, but um, horror is cheap. Always has been cheap. I mean, you know, Halloween cost like a hundred thousand dollars in nineteen seventy-eight. It's fuck all. Some of these yeah. other films not don't cost a lot of money to make, and you find yourself with you know th- those um, what are they called? The Conjuring like franchise. Yeah, they make you, so much money. But you've got Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga. It's like, well, they're not A-list stars, but everyone knows who they are, and they're perfectly decent actors. You know, so you you look at some of the modern horror movies. I watched Smile the other day. Um, that came out last year, and it's a fairly standard horror movie. It's well done for what it is, but it's quite interesting that I think compared to some of the horror movies that were out when I was younger, pretty much every cast member is a serviceable actor. Everything's sort of fairly solid, right? And you just think you can get decent actors and a reasonably, you know, reasonably good idea and do it well for a, a fucking minimal. For, you know, the, the the catering budget on a Marvel film is enough to make a, a perfectly good horror movie with enough special. And we're not just talking. I'm going to have to overlook the special effects here. No, the special effects are fine as well. You know, so horror movie is the most cost-effective genre when you look at, but you know, when you look at like box office performance versus, um, uh, you know, cost to make. That's resulted in the studios kind of tuning out a lot of shit, but frankly, they tune out a lot of shit in every genre, you know? Yeah. No, I think... I've not mentioned the the genre that I've gone for from the film that I want to make, but... You keep your powder as dry as you yeah, like, mate. Yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll save that for when we, we delve into it. Sure. Um... So I, I again I I looked something up just to see what's going on here, and this is this is a website called Statista. So it, it looks like someone's done a bit of a um, you know, a survey that would that would that would pass muster as a you know something you know for an academic paper or something. So I, I think these numbers are quite reliable, right? Favorite television and movie genres of Gen Z in the United States in twenty twenty two. Number one genre. It's going to depress you. Comedy. Reality. Comedy. The reason it's going to depress you is how the fuck do you make a comedy in this day and age? I bet you most yeah. of the comedies they're watching are um, uh, either old or totally Gen Z comedies. I don't think yeah. you can make a broad-based... That'll just, that'll just be... So is this just TV shows, did you say? Sorry? No, it's film and TV. Film and TV. Well, it'll be comedy because everyone still watches fucking Friends. Yeah, I mean... And I think sometimes on TV, on Netflix, people can find a niche and stick with it because, you know, there's Always Sunny in Philadelphia and I guess Rick and Morty's a comedy and, uh, you know, was it Fresh Off the Boat is, is about the, the Asian immigrant experience. Sort of on, you know, there's a lot of streaming and TV comedies that, that, that work because they only have to find a niche. But you can't, it's so hard to do comedy films. I mean, Jennifer Lawrence has just done quite well with like an R-rated kind of rude comedy. But most people looked at that and went, Jesus, she's um she's taken a risk there. She's pulled it off, right? It's done fine, but it's just hard. I mean, how do you how do you do comedy nowadays? This the tastes have, have just changed so much. Certainly what worked is comedies can you do trading places now? Can you do um, you know, I don't know, some of um Jim Carrey's ninety stuff. I just don't think I just think it's hard to do. I've complete I don't know about you, but I've completely swerved comedy on this uh on this. Uh, yeah, but I think I'm going to surprise you with my ones. So. No, that's good. Um, horror is the next biggest. 
Um, action, animation. I haven't done animation. I mean, the thing, the, thing, the, the challenge they've got with animation is that they like animation, but animation films have been struggling as well. I think that's to do with how much Disney's fucked it up, though. If you're interested in what why the golden age of animation is over, we have a, a big conversation on that a couple months back. You can go and have a listen to that. Mystery, thriller, romance, all big. I was slightly surprised to see that sci-fi is relatively low down the list. Only 10% of, uh, of, of Gen Zers watch sci-fi. Not that we should be making movies just for them, right? Um, but I thought it was interesting just to see what you know, you know, genres are popular popular with the people who are watching the most movies at the moment. You know, yeah. Um, but it is what it is. Um, it's probably the thing with sci-fi is they're either small independent films that don't get seen a lot, or they're the big films, and the big films have stopped working. So maybe that's why it's so low at the moment. But but anyway, that's so the, you know that that that's the idea. There is you know genres where you can make some headway. Um, in terms of genre, I mean, one of the things that, that we've talked about on this is that it has that, that, that's a real challenge. We've said this a number of times on a lot of pods is it's really hard to get a new IP up and running, isn't it? And if we were going to pitch a new blockbuster, if we were going to pick something different and we're drawing on a book, a video game, an anime, a manga, anything that already exists and say, well, that's an existing IP, let's go for it. The, the existing IP that they've made successful use of in the past couple of years have been more like products and things like Barbie and stuff like that, or, or like um, rebooting the, the Turtles and stuff. And I guess Transformers is still going, but it's really hard to get a new IP up and running, mate. I mean, have you have you did you think about what you know existing uh, properties could be turned into um, successful films? Yes, I did, and that is what I did. Okay, so to get. I did ask on the socials for some ideas, and people came out with some interesting stuff. Um, I'm gonna have a. I'm just gonna chuck a couple of them out. There's there's a lot of stuff out that people came out with this. I'm just gonna jump through. People come up with a, a, a collection of thriller novels called The Straw Men, which I said this is really good. Dave, there's the fantasy fiction of David Eddings. A lot of people suggested like fantasy stuff. Uh, someone else said you could do the Tom Clancy Rainbow Six stuff. Um, some old sci-fi stuff, which I don't think. But someone said bring Blake Seven back, which I, I think they've already they've, they've just plundered Blake Seven so many times. I'm I'm, I'm not sure about that. Um, they talked about Chris Brookmeyer's Angel X trilogy, um, which I I love Chris Brookmeyer, but I just wonder if making an adaptation of that would um, be unsatisfactory for everybody because um, the uh, you couldn't make a big blockbuster film and, and have it so culturally specific to Scotland. But if Fucking you ma- racist. But no, but so the fact is, if no, you if, if you if you're going to make Chris Brookmeyer film, you would make it relatively low budget, so that you know it'll do well in Scotland, it'll do well in the rest of the UK, and it'll do well anywhere that kind of you know wants to go with it. But a lot of it might need to be watered down if you want it to play America. So you would that would be a smaller film. I'd, I'd love it that way, but I don't think you can make a blockbuster out of it. And I don't think you should try because it would just result in watering down the property. Much as I love um, uh, Chris Brookmeyer, I really do. Um, someone suggested Discworld, but that's probably going to be a series um, if ever if anyone ever does that. Uh, Discworld is, is there not like forty odd Discworld novels. There's loads. You could do it forever. The thing is, the people who did it was Sky at a time when Sky was making really bang average television. And if you've watched any of them, I watched them because I enjoyed them. And that you know, there's some stuff of Terry Pratchett's that nobody can fuck up. If you stick what he wrote on screen, it will be entertaining. But it was never nearly as good as what's in the books. 
Someone said they should uh, get Dread back up and running, which I heard someone is trying to do. They talked about David Gemmell's uh, mm-hmm. fantasy stuff. Um, someone said uh, this uh, a, a series of novels uh, by John Connolly about the central character Charlie Parker, which is a blender of crime thriller and supernatural, um, which plays a little bit to the horror, you know, horror thriller mystery. And I have actually read at least one of those, and they are like a they are like a good read. So. Um, that's what people are saying about genres. There's a lot of like fantasy stuff. Um, the problem that that you might have is you look at what people have done with fantasy most recently, and a they've done it as TV series, and b it wasn't cheap. I mean, do you think do you think do you think it's feasible to try and throw something that you know risky at, at the screen at the moment? If, if 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 mainstream blockbusters are struggling, should they just throw tons of money out there? I mean, Dungeons and Dragons. I think it was a perfectly fine film, but did not make it enough money. Do you could, do you could, do you think fantasy is viable at the moment? Mm, no, not unless you, I don't know because I feel like it's been done. We've had Harry Potter, we've had Lord of the Rings, and they're trying to reboot Harry Potter, and they've tried to reboot Lord of the Rings, and they are rebooting the the films again, or is it a TV show? I don't even know. They've done the Rings of Power, and then they're doing another. I think. And, and like you said, they did Dungeons and Dragons, which was a good film. Like you, Well, I've not seen it, but you said it's a perfectly fine film, but didn't make its money back. They did Warcraft, which was terrible. So Dun- Dungeons, I, and Dra- Dun- Dungeons and Dragons would have made a lot more money five, six years ago when big blockbuster films were all making money, right? But it just wasn't quite sharp enough. and Because like, you, ha- you have to fucking land it on a sixpence now if you want to do it. Do you know what I mean? Your margin for error is so low between ah oh, it was fine and yes that's going to hit. Do you know what I mean? You look at like the the, the the it's like people are saying oh you know adaptations of exist or, or or you know big blockbusters can do well. Look at Barbie and Oppenheimer, but look look how look how like look how close to the best possible standard of filmmaking those two films were. Barbie treads this incredibly fine line of tone and style and what the property that they're making is and what what the, the filmmaker is trying to do. Oppenheimer is about, you know, is about all of Nolan's kind of various kind of, you know, cinematic stylings. Not everyone can do that. Not everyone can pull that off. And Dungeons and Dragons is a classic example of a perfectly good team of people came up with a, a fine, like perfectly okay film. But because they didn't absolutely land it perfectly, it was only okay. And only okay doesn't make any money these days. Yeah. Um, and I, th- I think the reason they're redoing Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings is they've just lost their nerve. No one wants to try something new. They tried... Um, Dave, uh, David Edding's Wheel of Time, um, and they fucked it up. And perhaps if they hadn't fucked it up, it would have done better. But they're so frightened that oh, we're not. You know, I, I think they know deep down they're not very good at this, actually. And and there's some really. I mean, there's so much in fantasy. There are so many stories out there to do, but they've because they've lost their touch. No one is good enough to go. Oh, I'm going to take this new idea, the Shinara Chronicles or whatever it is, and I'm going to make this fucking work. Because I'm going to make this fucking work is not something anyone in Hollywood can say with any confidence at the moment. Do you know what I mean? This is like in the 60s and 70s, new filmmakers came along and established Hollywood just went, well, I don't know what the fuck they're doing, but the audience is watching it. So we better let them take over. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, and they were able to wrest control back when blockbuster cinema arrived with Jaws and Star Wars. But for about 10 years, they just went, we better let the kids do this because they don't. We because we don't know how to do this, you know. And yeah. I think they're at that stage. And I think fan, for me, I think fantasy is going to have to wait until Hollywood get gets its knack back. Do you know what I mean? 
Yeah. Um, so that you know, it's, it's interesting what people are suggesting. It's it's interesting to see what people are interested in. Obviously, these are people who are interested in replying to you know socials posts that I put out. You know. Um, so they're obviously more film fans. And if you want to make a blockbuster, you need the average person in the street who fancies seeing a film to turn up, you know, that's the challenge. Um, but I mean, but that, that's enough preamble. H- how many sort of blockbuster suggestions have you got? I've just got one, but it could become a big series of films. Okay. Well, shall I, shall I have a go with, with, uh, the, the stuff that I've, that I've done here? Yeah? Yep. And then. You can do yours, and then I'll, and then I'll do, do. Then I can do another one. So, first of all, sort of adjacent to the whole horror crime, well, more, more horror thing. Yeah, the fact that horror is still a popular genre and it and it's um, uh, relatively economical to make. So, any film you make in the horror genre is going to be well under a hundred million. You know, um, you know, some of these films only cost three or four million. Um, it's phenomenally profitable genre. I mean, even something like Get Out and, and Us, which were complex films, Get Out was like five million dollars, and Us, even though it was bigger and more ambitious, was twenty. These are these are numbers that Hollywood should be rubbing their hands at. They should be taking a, a big name director who wants to see a horror film should just get to do whatever the fuck they want because it's not possible for them to spend too much money. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I was in the horror type genre, and I was suggesting that this could be done. Um, it's an adaptation of something called the Lovecraft Investigations. I don't know if you've heard of this. I feel like I have, and I, I just, maybe it's just because I've heard of someone called Lovecraft. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about H.P. Lovecraft on the pod because we talked about um, uh, At the Mountains of Madness, which is a famous Lovecraft story that uh, Guillermo del Toro tried to make and which was a big influence on things like John Carpenter's The Thing and all that kind of thing. H.P. Lovecraft is you know, a big influence on John Carpenter and Stephen King. So we've talked about him a few times on on the pod. I watched a Nick Cage film called uh, Colour Out of Space. So there is a, a chance that one of the next four films that you get uh, randomised for you on the on the pod this year, because you're doing a Nick, Nick, Nick Cage film picture at random, you could find yourself watching that. And that's an adaptation of, of Lovecraft as well. And I, I've watched that and talked about it on the pod before. So, you know, he's been in and around, yeah? But the Lovecraft Investigations, it was it, it actually was a radio drama. It's one of the most listened to shows and podcasts on BBC Sounds. Like it's like top, one of the top 10 things. And BBC Sounds is available worldwide. So this has got a very big audience in a niche area, right? But it's it's very, very popular. And it's it, what it is, it's quite an innovative adaptation of the old um, Lovecraft stories. What it is, it's a... An, an, an investigator who is has connections kind of with certain shadowy secret agencies who've been set up just because there's some weird shit going on, teams up with um, someone who does like a paranormal investigation podcast. That's the format for the, you know, uh, for the show. It's like you're, it's like you, and it's a fictional, it's like you're listening to the podcast of the people who've actually doing the, doing the Lovecraft investigations in the same way that, Dracula is written like it's the letters and diaries of the people who are actually there. You know, it's a it's a it's a construct, but they are investigating strange events, which are all storylines from H.P. Lovecraft. So they've updated it to the present day. It's not set in the nineteen twenties or whenever Lovecraft or thirties, whenever Lovecraft was writing. And each of these storylines is uh, a mystery that they've got to investigate. There are shadowy invest, you know, uh, organizations, some of whom are more or less on the, the right side 
trying to protect things, but they don't want the, the truth to come out. So they're, they're, they've got antagonists there. There are shadowy organisations who are in league with kind of strange, evil, terrifying phenomena. You've got to watch them. It could be attacked at any minute. And as they investigate the like the disappearance of a uh, of an individual or a strange phenomena happening in a small town, terrifying, horrifying, Lovecraftian horror um, phenomena are unleashed. And it works quite well on, well, it works, actually it works superbly on the radio when you're using your imagination, but I think it would work very well on the screen because what you have is um, a, a, you know, up on the big screen, horror, terror, strange creatures, cultish uh, individuals kind of attacking people, kidnapping them, uh, who are, you know, seemingly possessed by, by evil spirits and stuff. And I think it plays right into the popularity of horror at the moment with a little bit of a new spin on it because someone actually doing a podcast and following, uh, you know, obviously we're podcasters, so we're going to think this is a good idea. But the idea that someone at the, you know, at the, in, in some sort of new media is involved in the investigation just gives it a bit of a fresh new spin. So it's not just an old haunted house tale that's been warmed over. It's a genuinely fresh and new way of telling this story. I mean, have I, have I got you interested so far? Yeah, I, I like it. I think it would be one of those ones that you'd make and it would be like, okay, like you see the trailer and you think, okay, maybe, maybe they're onto something here. And then it would maybe discreetly just kind of explode out of nowhere. Mm. Um, which horror films tend to do, don't they? Yeah. Yeah, and it's like the first... Um... Uh, the first one is the case of Charles Dexter Ward. Now, I think you're going to have to either use Love, the Lovecraft Investigations as the title, because uh, I don't think the case of Charles Dexter Ward is is the sort of thing that you could put on the on the side of a cinema these days, <clears throat> which is a challenge for a lot of these older stories. Um, but Charles Dexter Ward is a young man from a prominent family who was committed to a mental asylum. His family won't talk about why he was committed there, and now he's disappeared. Um he exhibited minor but inexplicable physiological changes, and then he's just disappeared from his room. So how's he? He's not escaped. He's fucking disappeared. And when you um, investigate it, the, the sort of legends are around sort of uh, you know, culty people who claim to be necromancers and mass murderers start to come out. So what's been going on with this person? And, and when because you investigate it by someone going, the central character is relatively sceptical. It's not like one of these... You know, uh, uh, you know, you get stuff online and you get podcasts going. Oh, this is true. This is really aliens. This is definitely a ghost, and they're looking for anything that will prove that. This is the the central characters are quite sceptical. Going, well, this sounds quite strange. Why did he disappear? Maybe someone's helping him out. They're always looking for like a pragmatic, realistic reason why something could have happened, and they they they, they have a healthy scepticism so that when something weird fucking happens and terrifying, and some creature comes out or some deranged cult who believe that they can raise the dead, capture somebody, They, um, it's like, well, I believe this now because this person hasn't just gone and believed it's a ghost like fucking Derek Akora. They were quite sceptical and were always looking for a logical explanation to what they found. I mean, in the absence of a logical explanation, here they are in, in a basement with fucking Cthulhu about to unleash. It's, it's much more scary if they've made an effort to make it feel real, you know? Yeah. Um, and the stories are connected, so you can give things an arc. Um, there's just, and honestly, I mean, first of all, I recommend you listen to the, um, 
the Lovecraft Investigation podcast. It's part of something called the Pleasant Green Universe, and it's basically all about strange phenomena exist. There is a town which has fucking disappeared off the map, and one of the central characters is stuck in the town when it's disappeared off the map. So it's still there, but no one else knows where it is, and this shadowy organisation comes in and says, right, nothing to see here, get to fuck, right? And But my friend's stuck in there, um, oh, well, no one will believe you. You've, you've got these kind of storylines that people do that, and it's got a horror element. I, I think it's a genuine... I mean, I'm not sure how full horror you would make it, because it's not it's not like teen horror slasher stuff where people get murdered. It's like a, it's investigative, it's thriller, it's mystery, but you can just generate this kind of horror and terror around it. I mean, my one question about it is the sort of thing that it's thinking about this, there, there is that they, someone could make an argument for what I've just described and, and say, Oh, that could be a series rather than a film. I mean, what, what would be your preference? I know we're trying to make films on this, on this, but do you know what I mean? If you're just sitting there as a as a member of the public, and someone suggests that, is that more TV or film for you? Well, what I was going to say was that what I picked could definitely be a TV show. However, we're in the money making business here, yeah. And if we want to make make money, you don't make it from making a TV show. Yeah, TV shows are made because they are popular and they do make money, obviously, because Sky want to buy them and people buy subscriptions to HBO and that kind of thing, but. If you want to kind of just blow everyone out of the water and make a billion dollar film, yeah, a billion dollar entity, sorry, then you make a film, is what I'm trying to say. Um, so I think for this podcast, I think if it can be a TV series, then absolutely great. But I think we're making films to make money here. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, there's there's about, f- I mean, there's there's four Aldridge, well, there's actually, well, there's three and they're, they're about to do a fourth Um uh, Lovecraft investigations on the ones called uh, Aldridge Kemp, uh, but they are. Um, you could each one of them could probably be a couple of films, and I think it's just a case of they're full of cliffhangers, they're full of thrills and spills, they're full of strange phenomena, um, and I think it just it creates a, a a sense of reality. You've got a couple of engaging characters to kind of run it, and if it was popular it can spin off a little bit because there's some non-Lovecraft storylines in this Pleasant Green universe, this strange phenomenon. There's a, there's a whole series called Mythos as well that's got about four or five storylines that they, that they could work from. And I would suggest that you have to change it for film. You have to make it work on, on, a, on a film level. So, But the, the fact is, while this is popular, it's not like something like Harry Potter where people are waiting for you to go, oh, you missed out the ghosts, um, so I'm not happy, you know? Um, it's going to be a case of this is a decent property that you would then need to bend and shape into a film. But it's Lovecraftian strange phenomena, which is at the basis of so much good and successful horror. It, I think it jumps over the, the, the problem that a lot of that older stuff has. I mean, like we talked about the problem with John Carter, John Carter of Mars, is that it was written in 1920 or 1912, and it's been plundered so often that it doesn't look fresh. I've, I've listened to these. They sound and look fresh because they've updated it. It's got, you know, they've modernized it so well. But then it's all modernized and it's all great and it's all intelligent and I'm you know I'm I'm, I'm doing a logical explanation. This is the 21st century. I don't believe in ghosts and haunted houses. But then oh fuck, here I am stuck and some strange shits coming through the walls, you know. Or this group of cult members is coming after me to cover up for what's happened to Charles Dexter Ward, and it's thrilling. And I think it's it's got enough horror to satisfy the horror fans, but it's enough of a mystery thriller to kind of satisfy everyone else as well. So I mean, I'm I'm genuinely up for this. Um, would you, what, 
what we talked about on the pod is that there's a, there's a, there's a loose theme to all the features that we did in this pod is that they were all like either star vehicles or an attempt to uh, you know start a franchise or make a blockbuster. And one of the things that that it came down to in all of those was partly casting. And that this part of the reason we did this you know this episode this time is because last time when we were talking about casting what ifs, we were talking about you know how a star affects the making of a movie if you're going to do a film like this what sort of stars do you think do you need to kind of attract people what would be your thoughts you don't want to just go out and get someone like robert downey jr who's going to eat up half of your budget mm. um you need to maybe try and secure someone and then promise them like a percentage of the uh revenue so yeah offer them like a an okay fee of if the budget say the budget is hundred million, you offer a, a, a star maybe three million as their fee, and then they get one percent of the or two percent of the film's profits. Then they're going to make a fuckload of money. Yeah. Um, well, depending if the film's successful or not. Uh, the same way that's what Harrison Ford did with the Star Wars: The Force Awakens. He just mm. said, "I want, I want two and a half percent or something like that," and made probably two hundred odd million from a from that. But. Um, yeah, I mean, I think you're looking at the same kind of recognisable mid-level names rather than like the biggest star in the world right now, um, but people who will get people to turn up, right? Um, and this is, the, the main characters there, they're called Matthew Heward and uh, Kennedy Fisher, a male-female team. Sometimes there's a bit of chemistry with them, a bit of will they, won't they? Um, but it's it's a man and a woman, so you're looking for a male star and a female star at the moment to fit that bill. I think they... <clears throat> probably play sort of the woman's in her 30s the man's in his 40s a little bit because the man's like he's the podcaster she's the investigator a little bit and but they could you know they get dragged along for the ride i mean what sort of what sort of names pop out i mean does this have to go american i mean that i mean the lovecraft investigations kind of dragged it across the atlantic to britain but these are originally american stories you could do this in britain you could do this in america um probably america to kind of get the broader audience right yeah, get the broader audience, uh, broader broader audience, but probably there'll be a lot more cheaper locations to film. It's a pain in the ass trying to film in the UK, um, even in Glasgow. It's that the reason Scotland didn't get Game of Thrones, um, is because uh, the Scottish government just said no, we want you to pay this amount in tax or something like that. So they just went to Ireland, um, so. I know they film a lot of films in Glasgow, but it is quite expensive um, to film here. So I think it'd be better to film in America, personally. Yeah, lot lot more locations. You could you could go to fucking Wyoming, and film a film there where it's cheap, and you could save money that way. Yeah, I mean this is New England, but yeah, the same thing. Yeah, yeah, oh, you, yeah. Could oh, go, oh, you could yeah. go out to like Maine or um, yeah, you know what I mean. Like yeah, it's... Maine, New Hampshire, those kind of places, and and try and do something. So, um, who's Given this isn't a, you're not a diehard fan of the Lovecraft investigations. This would be one where, say, I've suggested, hey, hey, they're making a film of the Lovecraft investigations. This sounds good. I'm a fan, so I'd turn out to watch this, right? You're not a fan of the original property, so you're looking to hear, oh, that trailer looks good, get good reviews, everything else. Who's in it? Who's who's getting you off the sofa and out to the cinema to to, to be in a film like this? Who, who would who would who would jump out for you? Hmm. So. How? Give me, give me the ages of the leads. I would say that the uh, the male lead is uh, probably forty ish. He's not old. 
but he's just got that slightly his voice sounds a bit older on the on the show and he's been around a bit he does this pod this investigative podcast and he's sort of uh sort of skeptical he he runs his own company kind of thing and he's you know he invests in and trusts and likes Kennedy Fisher the investigator and he's he's he supports the the idea of going out investigating this stuff and gets involved himself. So he's not necessarily all action guy, but he, he gets stuck in when he gets dragged into the investigation kind of thing. Do you know what I mean? So he's not there to wield a gun, but he is there to kind of yeah. Let, let's see let's see how this turns out. Okay, so uh, I suppose you could maybe get away with someone who's fifty playing a forty year old, and you could maybe yeah, get probably. away with someone who's yeah. thirty playing a forty year old. So it gives you a kind of broad scope of who you'd want, but I think I think you're the better person to suggest this one because you know you know the kind of source material. So yeah, I mean, look, depending if you can get someone and they're a big enough star, I mean, I reckon James McAvoy would be a good choice because he's okay. a recognisable name, um, but he's probably not so big that he's sitting there demanding twenty million dollars just to turn up. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, he's done some good horror stuff. I like Oscar Isaac. Um, he's just he's just very versatile, and these are people that are recognisable names. He's been in he's been in the Star Wars film, so everyone knows who he is, right? But he doesn't necessarily open a massive blockbuster himself. But he's the sort of person where you go, if we can get people out because it's a good horror movie and people like the trailer and they're fascinated by the premise, what recognisable names who you can one hundred percent depend on to be in a movie, right? Uh, and and play the part should you get? So I was thinking Oscar Isaac because I can't imagine he's. I bet he's doing well, right? I bet he's getting well paid for his stuff, but I can't imagine he's also so big that he would, you know, that he would turn his nose up at a a good new franchise kind of thing where he's not necessarily getting paid a ton of money up front. Uh so those were two names that 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 sprang to mind. Okay. I suppose you could you could probably throw someone like Michael Fassbender into the mix. Yeah, again, if we could get him. He, I mean again, I I I'd, I'd give Michael Fassbender literally anything to do and he'd be absolutely yeah. spot on, you know. Um, it, I mean, it, it, it does kind of depend who who they're going for. Because, like you say, if if you're if you're a horror movie that's that's able to offer one of your leads three million dollars, you're already sort of more than some of these things. Sometimes three million dollars is the entire budget of a horror movie. Um, but if you're in that kind of budget, I think you could get some of these names. I think you could get some people in there who people genuinely uh, believe in. I mean, Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Um, although he's probably a little bit too affable, but he's you know he, he might want to just transition into less boyish roles now. But it's it's those kinds of people. That those were two names that merely jumped out to me and say, yeah, that they that that combination of recognisable and gettable. So Oscar Isaac, James McAvoy. You know, I'm maybe being a little bit ambitious with those two, but they've been in massive films. Um, they've also done kind of weird horrory stuff. James McAvoy did it, and Oscar Isaac did Annihilation and uh, 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 Ex Machina. So he's he's worked in this sort of territory. So those would be my names for that. James McAvoy also did Split, which is sort of horror. It's not horror horror, but he's, he's played scary characters. Yeah, it's it's in the territory. I'd be I'd I'd be up for it for sure. Um, so a female female lead. We're talking. Yeah, thirties, thirties, forties. Actually, fine because there's there's a lot there's a lot of actresses who, who still seem young to me. Jessica Chastain's in her forties now, but I can still see her as quite young. So really, you know, any actress who's no more than that guy's age, maybe a little, maybe slightly younger, but yeah, that kind of that kind of age, sort of thir- late thirties into early forties, uh, female actress as well. Okay, uh, Rosamund Pike. Oh yeah, I'd snap your hand off for Rosamund Pike for sure, definitely. And I and I don't think she would command a massive fee, and she's a terrific actress. 
Yeah. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd definitely go for that. She, I, mean, I actually think she'd probably be the best option out of all of them because f- Jessica Chastain will cost you a pretty penny. Funnily enough, you've just picked two actors who you could then say, we can either do this in America or the US, and they would be equally comfortable. Exactly. Um, that's, that's fucking brilliant casting. Yeah, and in terms of pitching it, I, I mean, I've got some fairly strong views about it. If you're going to do horror, keep the budget down, get yourself an R rating or a 15 or even 18 rating and fucking scare the shit out of people. None of this PG-13 horror yeah. shit. Fuck that, right? Um, you're gonna obviously gonna have to make this stuff digestible to uh, an audience, because some of this, some of some Lovecraft films have fallen down because, you know, one one of his most terrifying stories is called the Unnameable, and it's actually the whole kind of you know thing of the central sort of creature or monster is that it's kind of impossible to describe and sort of lives inside people. So sometimes it's like a little bit hard to digest. So you have to make sure this works as like a mainstream thing. You can't have like a hugely kind of, you know, convoluted storyline and stuff that only works on a, uh, you know, on the page. But I, I do think the the podcast thing is, exposition is, is a challenge in so many things. Have you seen the film It Follows? Uh, no, but it's, I think you've spoken about it before. It, it's definitely worth a watch. But the whole thing about the, it follows is that there's there's some rules to the the creature that's that's attacking people, and you need to have an opportunity to understand those rules. And you know, it's like don't feed them after midnight in Gremlins and stuff like that. There's got to be some point where you understand the rules so that for the rest of the film you can see what's going on. And in in it follows, they had quite a good idea that the idea is in it in it follows is that if you have sex with this a person who's been some some it's it's like an allegory for you know teen pregnancy or or uh, or sexually transmitted infection the idea is is that there's this anxiety about having sex because it could have consequences right and in this horror movie it's a supernatural thing you have sex with this person and the terrifying thing that was following them is now following you it's been transmitted and in the story the central female character who spends the film being terrorized by this thing a guy deliberately infects her basically because he was terrified didn't know what to do so he passed it on to her yeah just so the thing wouldn't follow him anymore because if if it, if it catches you it kills you and because he did that it's like i'm a piece of shit for doing this but listen here's here's how it works and 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 you get the exposition but in a dramatic way and in this podcast, because you've got investigators trying to find out what's going on, and because every now and again you can just have them talking into a microphone saying, I went to the town and I spoke to these three people, and here's what I think is happening. Do you know what I mean? You can you can make the exposition a bit more natural. So you can have a way of explaining a potentially complex story so that when people are suddenly find themselves in the darkened room and the fucking, you know, couple of eyes appear in the corner, people know what's going on just enough to be absolutely shitting themselves. And I, I think this is a genuine franchise because you could make 10 films of this. Yeah, so so I'm up for that, and that's my sort of go at horror. I might come back a little bit to like the rules of horror and why horror works as a blockbuster, but that's that's my first go. W- w- are you sold? Would you go and see that? I know you're not a big horror guy, but would you go and see that? If it was done properly with the right cast, for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. Like like you say, I'm not a big horror guy, but if it was the right cast and the story was done properly, and maybe it wasn't just so focused on the horror side of it, then yeah. Maybe I, th- I think more, more to it kind of thing. I think this fits that bill for you because it's sometimes it's about cover-ups, mystery, and everything else. But there are moments where people are actually caught and terrified and everything else. But it's not like an ongoing, pervasive horror horror movie atmosphere. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. tense, unnerving. What the fuck is happening next? Kind of thing. So it's like it's it's thriller horror. You know? Yeah. No, I think I'd give that a bash. Very good. Yeah.
Okay, you've got your pièce de résistance now. Why didn't why didn't you pitch your idea to me? So, have you heard of a certain video game called Red Dead Redemption? I have. I think we should make a lot of films about that. Very good. So, no. my my first question on this, okay, the th and I, th I think the first reaction that I think you, you, you would need to overcome, which I'm sure you're going to cover in your pitch, is there have been so many bad video game adaptations and not many good ones. So, I'm interested to hear how you propose to make this a good one. So, now, my plan with this is I was getting a little bit sneaky with it, was um, I would have... I would do the first game for a hundred million or so, maybe a little bit over, because the first game isn't as big as the second one. The second one was absolutely fucking enormous. Mm -hmm. The second game is shorter story-wise. There's a there's a few side quests that are quite unnecessary, and you can you can get away with kind of cutting them and trimming them down. Whereas the second one, there's loads and loads and loads and loads of quests, and you probably have to make the second game into about four films. Okay. Whereas I reckon you can me you can maybe make the first game into one film. Or maybe maybe try and make it two. Okay, tell tell so, me tell me the storyline of Red Dead Redemption. So for those who have never played Red Dead Redemption, I don't. I think you know that I've played Red Dead Redemption, but I don't think you necessarily know. I don't know the ins and outs the of the storyline. Story so the story is that John Marston is a man who could be in his depends but he's probably in his 40s maybe mid 40s late 30s kind of thing and he is a former member of the dutch vanderland gang dutch vanderland was the head of this uh, this gang and they would rob banks rob trains etc um and they uh they end up breaking up and this is all explained this again they, they break up sort of in like 1899 and Red Dead Redemption 2 is set 12 years after that. Uh, Red Dead Redemption 1, sorry, I'll be clear, is set yeah. 12 years after that. And John Marston has settled down with his family. He started a ranch. He just wasn't really about that life. He's got quite he's quite a confusing character where he's got a wife and child. Um, he's the he's the only member of the gang in the who has a wife and child when he's still doing all these robberies and it's not healthy. It's not nice having his son around that environment. So he tries to get himself out of it. But at the start of the second game, they're called Pinkertons, but they are basically the federal agents. Yeah, um, I've I've heard of the Pinkertons. They were a, they're they're an interesting organization that actually, now that you mention it, has never been done that well on film, especially not their early early years. So that yeah. that's already piqued my interest. And he's basically told you've got to go and uh you've got to go and uh kill your former gang members is basically what he's told okay um so re reluctant protagonist yeah and he um he basically sorry i'm trying to i'm trying to remember this so he then is it's basically set in the deep south it's called in a state called like new austin and it's basically it's basically the deep south and he has to go and find and kill bill williamson and uh, Javier Escuela, two members of the gang. Otherwise, John's going to probably get killed or go to jail for the, the rest of his life and never see his wife and kids again. So he's blackmailed into doing this. And the story follows him trying to find Bill Williamson. He gets shot. He basically, the start of the game, you go and see Bill Williamson and uh, he shoots you right away from his uh, kind of base in this abandoned fort. 
and then he's helped by a character called Bonnie McFarlane and her dad. He does a little bit of work for them and then he goes back on his way trying to kill Bill and Bill basically eludes him for a lot of the game. Um, and he, he he goes to Mexico and ends up taking part in like the, the rebellion there. These are some things that you can kind of trim out of the story. He kills mm-hmm. Javier Escuela and then he kills Bill and then it turns out Dutch is still alive so he's got to go find Dutch. Yeah, and he kills Dutch, and he thinks, right, I've done everything I need for the uh, for this for this gang. You know, I yeah. can I can put my I can put my feet up now. Um, I'm living the dream, and then he uh, ends up that he did all of that for nothing. He was doing the Pinkertons' dirty work for them, and they bring in the army and they kill him. And he goes down the blades of blaze of glory. Sorry, at his barn, he gets his wife and kids out of there. They surround the barn. They run away, and he goes out, boots the door off, and takes about twelve, um, twelve uh, privates. Uh, that sounds a bit weird. Ten, ten uh, soldiers and um, Pinkerton agents with him, and then gets shot um, to bits and dies. And that's basically the sort of story. There's there's obviously more to it. There's more character relations. Um, going on but that's the basically the gist of the first story they also had uh a zombie dlc expansion pack which was amazing yeah and um, where he comes back from the grave and uh <laughs> yeah oh, no. well, you're, sorry, no, you're, no, no, you're so lurching sorry. into another genre there though aren't you so sorry uh, the way the game ends is that you end up playing as his son but for the undead it's called undead nightmare he come, it's by, basically before he gets killed by the uh the government so he um is still a man and alive at this point but then once you complete the uh, the zombie story, it's set after he's died, and then you come yeah. back as a zombie. All right. So it's it's fun. There's there's ex- ideas to explore with that and kind of thing. But the, the main just is the story of the first game. It's amazing. It was what it was mean to those intent. It's a bit dated now, but it's it's one of the best. Um, well, it's it's dated as a game. Whether it's dated as a storyline is a completely no. It's thing, not. Right? Well, then they did the second one. So my my plan was you could make the first one definitely for a hundred million, hundred percent. You could film it on location. You wouldn't need much CGI. You just need practical effects, um, some costumes, and a fuckload of horses. And point the um, camera at the point. Point the camera at the horizon. Yeah. Yeah. You might need to film on like a studio lot for. Um, like saloons and like you know the kind of old there's towns like armadillo and tumbleweed and stuff like that so you might need to film like that kind of side of things but other than that it's you would just film like on location and you know you could you could go some it would be cheap to film on location in you know texas or somewhere like that or you know wherever you wanted to film it for the the cheapest possible um Okay, before before you tell me about the second film, because obviously you're, 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 we're, t- we're talking about a franchise here. Um, it's set in the deep south, and obviously there's a bit of like breaking over into Mexico. Is it definitely in the deep deep south, like Alabama? Are you talking about like the south, like Texas kind of thing? I mean the Wild West. All right, so so it's so it's Texas, borderland Texas, right? Type, type, Texas, type, that New, kind of same Texas, thing, New yeah. Mexico, Arizona. Okay, so we're talking about a western, yeah. It's basically a Western genre, yeah. yeah, and it's like a revenge act, violent sort of. Is what what sort of what sort of film plays out here? Is this a is this like action packed or is it more of like a you know sort of a, a, a like a revenge thriller kind of thing? So it's a weird one. It's quite it's obviously quite a tragic story. It's action packed. There's loads of different things. You you end up hijacking trains. You um the when you go to attack the fort. 
in the game, you uh, you use a Gatling gun, and under the guise of uh, what's his name, what the f- uh, Nigel West Dickens, he basically sells n- n- these medical elixirs. He's a con artist, and he's trying to steal people's money. Um, and he uses uh, John to sell his... Uh, his name's John Marston. I don't know if I said that. He sells... Uh, he uses John to say, this elixir will make you uh, really good at shooting. And John is just good at shooting from all the robberies and that. So you end up shooting, like, hats out of the air and glasses, uh, glass bottles and stuff like that. Yeah. So he uses that to sell the elixir. Um, and he you, he puts the Gatling gun in Mr. West Dickens' cart and then they go into the fort under the guys. Oh, look, I've got all these things I can sell you. And the, the guys in the fort, the horrible um, members of Bill Williamson's gang think, mm-hmm. oh, we can rob this guy. And then John pops out and just starts shooting them all with a Gatling gun. It's very, very cool. Um, and there's train robberies. There's, um, there's when you go into Mexico, you have to like jump on a raft and try and, you know, navigate that way through. So there's, there's loads of potential for action sequences, even though it is the Wild West because of the way that, the game story plays out yeah um but the reason i'm not sure if i could make it uh one film is because there's characters in it that you could try and explore like bonnie mcfarlane doesn't really contribute to the story other than like her self and her father help john get better when he gets shot and you help on the ranch and she gets kidnapped and you've got to go and save her but other than that she sells you some cows at the end of the film, but she is a really good character. She's like a strong kind of, she's like basically running the ranch with her, her father. Um, so so like we might want to fill her out a little bit just so that you've got a bit of representation in the cast yeah. and stuff, yeah? There's funny characters, like there's this guy called Irish who is just a, a drunkard who helps you source a Gatling gun. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to break into a, a mine that's been taken over by some bandits and you have to use a mine cart and... Um, basically raced through a mine shooting people in this mine cart, which is uh, very cool. Okay, so, and in terms of it needing a $100 million budget, you know, you can film quite cheaply in Texas and all that kind of thing, but I guess it sounds like the cost comes from you are going to have to recreate, you know, Old West-like towns and stuff, and there's action and sequences and stuff to do if you're attacking trains or, you know, you know, having big sort of shootouts and stuff. There is, you know, it there's stuff happening there is action to be filmed which is going to cost that kind of money right yes so the reason i'm not sure it's weird because it's not really a film that you could end on a proper cliffhanger of two parts yeah like maybe you you end it when he gets to mexico but it'd be a bit of a flat ending Mm -hmm. um especially if your central character dies at the end it feels like it needs to be a one-shot film and then and then you follow up with the sun that that that's a good arc that's a good arc for like one film to, to the next film after you take over as the son, you go and you... I forgot to say this is the coolest but you go and actually kill the Agent Ross who killed your dad. Mm-hmm. So, he, who kills John, you find him and you have a... You have like a duel, like a... You, you draw your weapons and kill them. So, th- there's that kind of element to it as, as well. But I think if you made it a two and a half hour film, you could squeeze in the full story. Yeah. You, okay. And You'd have to... It's hard because you don't want to spend too much time on the... Um, like there's characters that are important like the Nigel West Dickens but the actual quest of helping him sell his fake uh, miracle elixir would be quite dragging so you'd have to do things to kind of make that streamlined and yeah kind of go quickly but it is it would I think it would be awesome it, the, it would easily make hundreds of million the first one for sure the Red Dead sure. Redemption 2 is one of the most appreciated games of all time the story but Red Dead Redemption 2 is fucking massive it's 
it's it's it's a better story than the the first film uh, the first game sorry it's a prequel um yeah. you, you don't follow john john's in it but you actually follow this guy called arthur morgan um but there's there's like the full gang is in this and there's there's a lot more to it but you could try and streamline that down to probably two films yeah um and yeah it's that's got a lot of kind of complex and interesting characters in that one Okay, so I mean, it looks like this film shipped about uh, twenty-three million units. It's one of the best-selling video games of all time. So there's Which a one, co- the first one. Yeah, yeah. So the core audience, if all twenty-three million go and see the film and pay ten dollars, that you know, two hundred and thirty million is just from the core audience. Yeah, yeah. And the fact that it's played out from. I mean, I've just had a little look at this. It seems to have been quite influenced by the spaghetti westerns of Leone. Um, there's a bit of Tarantino's Django Unchained in it. There's um, uh, the Wild Bunch and, and generally speaking, the westerns of Sam Peckinpah. Um, so it, it it sounds like it was quite a film literate storyline. It, it made a point of being like in keeping with great western films in the storyline. So when it comes back onto the big screen... It sounds like it will have style and tone and action, which works in the Western genre because that's how they built the game. Is that right? Yeah. Okay. So, look, I'm on board because I like a good Western. Next question, if if I'm doing this, are we talking? We're talking brutal and R-rated here, aren't we? It would have to be at least a 15, yeah. So R-rated in America, at least a 15 here, and hundred million dollar budget. You're in the territory where the studio is going to want everything to be absolutely watertight. Um, you know, they might want to see if you can get it for 80, 90 just to kind of save a bit of money and kind of, you know, manage a bit of risk. Um, but yeah, look, it's R-rated, but with a with a popular title, Oppenheimer was R-rated and made a lot of money. But it, it, it is, you've got a smaller bullseye to land on here just because, you know, the studio wants, the bigger a film is, the more likely the studio wants it to be a 12A. And this doesn't sound like something that could remotely be done properly with a 12A or PG-13 certificate, right? No, I couldn't. This, no, this, need, this needs to be R-rated. Um, tell me about the main character again. What's his name? John Marston. John Marston. What sort of character is he? Is he big? Is he small? Black? White? What What kind of guy is he? What kind of, what kind of personal style does he bring with him on screen? He's kind of a gangly guy, but... The person I had in mind to play him isn't necessarily a gangly guy, but I don't think it would affect the character too much because he's such a badass. He punches fuck out of people. He throws people about. He shoots a lot of people. He fights bears. He fights all sorts. So so he's physical. He's tough. No fucks given, but he's tried to leave all that life behind and got a family. I yeah, mean, he's, yeah. He's got scars on his face. If, if, Clint, if Clint Eastwood was 40, the studio would drive a truck of money up to his house to get him to play this character, Pretty right? Much, yeah. Okay. Who did you have in mind to play him? John Berthnall. Oh, John Berthnall from The Punisher and that sort of thing. Yeah. So my question is, is is someone going to sign off on a $100 million film with him in, in the lead? I think so. I think he's got, I think he's well known as, you know, Shane from The Walking Dead. Um, and this would be a star-making turn for him, wouldn't it? Like, I know he's a star on TV. He's done some fucking massive stuff on TV. He's done The Punisher and stuff like that, so... I love John Burntall, so um, I think he would be. I think he, he's a terrific actor. I think he's a very underrated actor, and he would do a very good job of this. He's, um, 
yeah, he would be my personal choice. I just don't, I can't really picture anyone doing it. I did toy with the idea of just getting the voice cast from the film to play the characters because they all did motion capture. Yeah. Capturing like their face and obviously their voices are all iconic and, you know, synonymous with the game. Um, but that definitely wouldn't, that wouldn't pass with the studio um, at all. Yeah. I, 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 I think your main concern is going to be he's not been the lead in many films and none of those films made large yeah. amounts of money. Um, but if you if you were to go in there and you know if they did the marketing and they say God Jesus we make this film everyone's going to want to watch it do you know what I mean if they if the buzz what what happens is if they announce they're making Red Dead Redemption right if they announce the the movie is being made and when they're looking for actors and they see the buzz from like audiences who are totally totally up for this you would hope they'd go all oh, right maybe we can have some confidence in the project and if the project says this is the right actor to to play him um, uh, let's go with it do you know what I mean. Yeah, if I'm not suggesting these names necessarily, but it, it, I, imagine the meeting in the boardroom where the studio is suggesting different names, and it's pissing you off. But these are the names that they would give you a hundred million dollars for. What sort of conversation are you having, Chris Hemsworth? Well, mate, no, he's not. He's too. He's too much of a pretty boy. Like not in the. Like he needs to be a kind of gruff mm -hmm. kind of guy, and Chris Hemsworth isn't that. Mm -hmm. Um, I toyed with the idea of Tom Hardy. That was the next name I was going to give. Um, but he he's kind of developed the status of being the most you know desired, uh, one of the most desired men in Hollywood. And that kind of gives me the idea that he's a bit of a pretty boy. Mm -hmm. Um, but Christian Bale. No, not your guy. No, 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 no. Bradley Cooper. Definitely not. No? No. What if Bradley Cooper turns up in character, in costume, and absolutely fucking throws himself at it? What, and wears a massive prosthetic nose? Has he got to have a big nose? I think Bradley Cooper's got no, a big I'm, nose. I'm, no, I'm making a joke about the whole Leonard Bernstein. All right, sorry. <laughs> sorry. Um, <laughs> yeah, I just got that now. I got that two seconds too late. I would probably just try and get Tom Hardy then because he would obviously smash it out of the park. Yeah, um, but but John Bern John Berntal is your guy. If you're this is this is Francis Ford Coppola, nineteen seventy two, telling Ryan um, Ryan O'Neill and Robert Redford to fuck off so that he can have Al Pacino. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, I love John Berntal. It's a case of what you're talking about is a film that that needs to sell itself on the property, not the star. But if it gets big, then John Berntal becomes the kind of star that, you know, other people have when they've landed exactly the right franchise, yeah? Yeah. So, with, with that, do you want me to explain the story of Red Dead Redemption 2 a little bit? Yeah, yeah, let's let's, let's run you, it. Then you can do your other ones because this is this is what I kind of banked making all this sort of money. So make Red, make money on the first one, and then Red Dem Red Red Dead Redemption Two sounds like it's the kind of thing that's going to build out into more you know multiple films. Yes. So and you could definitely have set. You could make it into two films and kind of break it up on like certain cliffhangers because there's so many things that go wrong in this one. Um. Maybe even three films, and you'd have to you'd have to name them different things. 
you couldn't just call them Red Dead Redemption because the first game's called Red Dead Redemption and the second one's called Red Dead Redemption 2. So you'd maybe have to call it Red Dead Redemption. Red Dead the, Revenge or something? Or? No, no, you would no, you would have to call it Red Dead Redemption colon something. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Red Dead Redemption. Retribution. Stuff like that, yeah. Yeah. So he the, the second game starts, you're following this guy called Arthur Morgan and he's been Dutch Vanderlind who is this very charismatic, um, larger-than-life character. The actor that plays him six foot six, but in the game they only make him six foot, but I think they shouldn't make him six foot six. I think it'd be hilarious. But he's basically this charming... He's a he's in, head of this criminal gang, but he wears a bowler hat, a waistcoat, has a pocket watch, and he's very fancy, well-to-do. And they've been robbing banks for years. They took Arthur in under their wing when he was a, a wee boy and he's been doing this since he was like 12 years old he's just been robbing banks robbing people uh you know debt collecting that kind of thing he's a very uh scary man arthur morgan but he's 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 quite emotionally driven he's quite a night he's got he's got a moral compass basically he's a nice guy who does bad things and it starts after a failed uh bank job in Blackwater where there's sort of whispers that Dutch is sort of losing his mind. Yeah. Um he's not quite all there anymore and he he kind of he sh- he shoots someone. I think he shoots a woman in cold blood. Mm-hmm. Um and it's like it's not in line with what he would do. He would only he, he wouldn't want to kill that person that was absolutely necessary in his eyes. And they are struggling up in the mountains, and there's a guy that's just joined the gang, Micah Bell, who Arthur doesn't trust. Who doesn't trust very much. He's uh, he's very wary of him. He's a bit of a crazy character. This Micah. There's other people in the gang. There's Charles, who is, I think, his dad's black, and his mum's a Native American. Um, and then there's Lenny, who's just a black guy, who's like quite a young guy. Then there's Hosea, who's Dutch, Dutch's like oldest pal in the gang, kind of thing. He's like he's in like what looks like his sixties or seventies, and he's still in this gang. Um, you've got Bill, Javier, uh, John's in it, and his wife Abigail, who is uh, his son uh, Jack, who is about four, maybe five. At this point, he's just hanging in the gang. I'm trying to think if I'm missing any other members. Uh, there's this guy called Sean, who's this Irish guy. Um, and then there's like there's a there's a, a chef and. That's pretty much it. There's like, there's member. There's like women in the gang, like um, who go around and they try and kind of like steal men, like they try and rob men, like they're trying, you know, think they're gonna sleep with them and then they rob them with their money. That kind oh, of oh yeah thing. yeah, so, they're, they're kind of they call call that rolling them over or something like that. Yeah. So there's there's loads of members of the gang. So this is a much expanded world now. Yeah yeah yeah, and it's, it's a huge it's a huge game. It's the original map of Red Dead Redemption, and on top of that, you've got this enormous landscape but basically the gang's kind of falling apart they're trying to make ends meet the plan is that they're going to get uh, enough money to move to tahiti and get away from the pinkertons that keep chasing them but arthur's kind of thinking look um i, I don't think i can do this anymore he sacrificed a lot he was in love with this woman called mary but they couldn't be together because of the the kind of line of work that arthur does um but the kind of plot of the story is that um they're trying, they, they have a rivalry with the group called the O'Driscolls. Um, Colm O'Driscoll killed Dutch's wife and Dutch killed Colm O'Driscoll's brother. So there's a rivalry between them. They're, they're kind of a part of the game. They're not kind of like the main story, so I don't know if you need to have them in it, but it's a cool kind of subplot. Um, but 
basically, to kind of paraphrase, Arthur one day is collecting money for this guy called Mr. Strauss. I forgot about him. He does like, um, he tells you to go and collect people's money. And when you do, this guy, he, when you're beating him, blood gets in your mouth and it gives Arthur tuberculosis. Right. And in 1899, that is a death sentence. Yeah. So kind of for the last kind of third of the game, your character is really struggling, you know, coughing, going from this like healthy, strong, stern guy to basically like this just kind of coughing mess. Um, but um, the, there's kind of like this ironic plot where you break Micah out of uh, jail, but it turns out Micah is a rat for the Pinkertons. So you were yeah. allowed to not trust him. Yeah. And Dutch doesn't believe you, doesn't believe that Micah's this. Micah just always kind of sucks up to Dutch to get him to hear what he wants because he's been bribed by the Pinkertons to kind of um, give them information. So he's trying to kind of cover his own his own back. But and uh, the gang is constantly getting chased. You're constantly moving and you're constantly changing camps. And uh, John gets captured at some point. You've got to break him out of prison. And John uh, Dutch doesn't want to send anyone to help him, even though he's going to get executed. Um, and it's just kind of showing the falling apart of how the gang used to be this massive, strong group. And then by the time there's the game, the first game starts, you know, there's just John, Bill, Javier, and you don't even know Dutch is alive. Um, and basically Arthur is kind of growing distant from the group. And he, depending on the, your choices in the game, you either die from tuberculosis or uh, Micah kills you. And... Dutch, you know, sides with um doesn't really side with Micah, but doesn't kill him for killing you because you know you, you sort of question Dutch's judgment throughout the entire game, and then after that you take up the role of John and um you're trying to find uh you're trying to start your own life and you, you see them building their own ranch called Beecher's Hope and then people yeah. like Charles and um. There's a Sadie Adler, forgot about her. You you meet her early on in the game. Her husband is murdered and uh, killed by the O'Driscolls and it seems to suggest that she was raped by the O'Driscolls, so she hates them. She's got a vendetta. And she starts as this kind of like screaming, kind of weak character to go into like, like this absolute, you know, badass who can just kill any uh, man that gets in her way. They help you build your, your ranch and then you... Uh, you hear whispers that Micah is, um, you know, nearby and you, you go up to kill him and it's very hard because he's got his own kind of group. But you, when you actually go to confront Micah, uh, Dutch comes out and yeah. he's, he hears Micah's confession and Dutch uh, shoots him and Dutch walks away and John walks away and they don't see each other till the end of the first game. But that's the, the basic story in that. There's a few points in that where you could have like cliffhangers there's there's loads of characters die. Hosea dies when you try to rob a bank in this place called Saint Denis, which is basically New Orleans. Hmm. Um, Lenny dies um, not long after that when you try and escape through the rooftop. So there's a lot there's a lot of emotional emotion. The most emotional moment in the game is towards the end where your horse dies, and John's telling Arthur, "Look, we've got to go," and he just bend, he just bends down and puts his arm on like the horse's face and just says, "Thank you." And if, I don't care if you're a grown man, you're absolutely sobbing playing that, trying to yeah. trying to trying to kill fucking Pinkertons with tears in your eyes is very, very hard yeah, to do. Yeah, but yeah. That's the kind of story of that one. And there's a lot more to it. It would 
it would have to it would have to be two films. Now, yeah, the bit, I, I mean, at, the, le- at least two. From what you described, there's a lot going on there, and you'd have to the, stick to a very sort of tight line, wouldn't you? And that is me paraphrasing it. Like at the start of the game, you you rob a train that the O'Driscolls were going to try and rob. There's um, you go on like you go on hunts and stuff like that, and then you 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 rob the bank in Saint Denis, and then after that, you escape and you end up. You try and get a boat. You, you sneak on a boat and you end up in Guarma, which is like mm-hmm. this, I think, fictional island just off Cuba. I don't even know if it's real. Um, yeah. And then there's that, and then you're trying to get back to it. So there's so much in it. And I'm, I think the best... I don't know the the best way to kind of end the first film would maybe when you your boat crashes and you wash up on Guarma and you just see, you know, this dry, you know, harsh landscape that you've kind of washed up in but whether you would end it there or end it with like maybe one of the characters death like Hosea or mm-hmm. Lenny um and maybe you know going from there but it's it's there's a lot more to that one but there's so many more interesting characters like Charles I find Charles really interesting because he's like a he's like a hunter from his um I think his dad's side and his I think mm-hmm. yeah his mum's black and his dad's native american so his dad showed him how to hunt and track He's a very interesting character because he's basically two ethnic minorities that, you know, b- both parts of him are hated. Yeah. Um, just because of, like the color of his skin and where he comes from. Yeah. Um, and then obviously you know there's Micah who you absolutely loathe and despise. He's like one of the worst people. And then there's the the Pinkertons as well. So there's there's so much going on that, that you would have to cut a lot of stuff. I think you would have to cut the O'Driscolls. You would. Yeah, I think you would just yeah. replace the O'Driscolls and you would meet Sadie Adler and she's just been like attacked and her husband's killed by bandits. And as a result, she's just like this badass who's not going to let anyone get in her way rather yeah. than focusing all this, on the O'Driscoll side plots, even though they are very cool. But yeah, it's it's funny. It's 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 tragic, obviously, but it's written by Rockstar, who have obviously done the Grand Theft Auto games. And it's, it's very... It's, it- what, well what, what you're describing is a strong narrative, which is why The Last of Us worked as an adaptation, yeah? Yeah. Look, look, you've pitched a big one here, mate. I'm totally, totally interested, and obviously this is a big property. Um, high degree of difficulty. First question, hand on heart, TV series or film? thing is, it would be weird making a film of the first one and then a TV show... Mm-hmm. of the second one so i don't know whether you would just do it chronologically and just do the tv show of the second game because there's that much to it and then mm-hmm. at the end of it you end on like a two and a half hour film you know the way that um the final stranger things episode of season yeah, four yeah. was basically yeah. a film basically a film yeah so yeah whether you did like three seasons of the the second game and then one season of the final one yeah but i still think you can make money if you made three or four films. Yeah, and it's inspired by films. It's a very cinematic idea. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And look, this look, this is a difficult, you've pitched it. This is going to have to land absolutely right, yeah? Yeah, it's... You'd, it, you'd, need, you'd need to give this to a... I mean, you've got John Benson. You'd need to give this to a director, a producer, and a writer who would absolutely nail this. No, I'd, and, I wouldn't give it to a writer. I'd, I'd let Rockstar get the original writers from that. But yeah, by writer, I mean whoever writes it needs to absolutely yeah, control the narrative. Absolutely. And you'd need a strong director. You would need someone who's actually going to stay in control of this. I wouldn't just get some fucking no-name. You would need a, a, a direct. You'd need that unicorn, really, of a director who kind of gets the story, gets video games enough, but is a big 
a big enough director to kind of handle themselves and make this work and like keep the nervous studio off their back while they make the movie, right? This is this has got all the politics of a big blockbuster in it, right? Yeah. Well, I'm in. I, I, I'm genuinely interested. Um, so why don't, why don't we close with, with my other idea. Um, just very quickly, I, I said I did come back to horror. I think there needs to be more done in horror than like big movies. There's a lot of horror which is very disposable. There's a lot of like... I think we should try and not just have horror completely in the hands of the people doing yet another Conjuring sequel, yet another Paranormal Activity sequel. Fair play to them. They're, they're making successful films. But there is an element of this is cheap, this is profitable, let's just go out and do a million jump scares. I want to see some genuinely interesting filmmakers of the calibre of Jordan Peele do more horror because there's some genuinely interesting stuff in there. If you look at the, the greatest horror films, you know, they were all kind of like cost effective. You know, they you know they were a good business case because they didn't cost that much to make, but they were good films. And you just want someone who's going to do something interesting with an atmosphere. You know, but bear in mind the fact that the audience is aware of the conventions of horror and play with that. Be good at atmosphere, tension. You know, find interesting settings, and 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 make horror films that are going to last and stand the test of time a little bit because people are still talking about The Exorcist and they're still talking about Halloween. And there's been a few films like that, like It Follows. I just I just like to see the studios properly support. There are some interesting filmmakers out there doing horror. I just like to see them supported into making kind of some genuine horror cinema. Just just because it'll make money. But Hollywood needs to needs to forget this thing. Like, it, it makes money, let's just churn it out. It's like it makes money if you do it right and give it to the people who love it and care for it and do it right. Jordan Peele genuinely loves horror movies and genre cinema. So even though he gets kind of credit for doing his films very cleverly, his films make money because people go, this guy fucking believes in what he's doing, you know? And I genuinely I genuinely want to see people do more of that. That's just a little like, you know, if, if we're talking about blockbusters generally, that's a genre that's going to work because people watch it, you know, and it, may, and it makes money. But my final attempt, this is, I'm not sure how this is going to land, so be interested in, in, in what you're going to see. I think we should... Um, Someone already attempted to do this once and failed, so this is a bit of a reboot. But I think someone should start making films about the the crime novels of Sarah Paretsky. You won't have heard of her. No, I have not. So her, her main character is called V.I. Wachowski, or Vic, and they made the mistake of calling the film V.I. Wachowski, which is just not a catchy name for a film. It had Kathleen Turner in it, and, and it went wrong because they just fucked up every aspect of it. They just got it all wrong. Like for, for, you know, just simple stuff like the main character is meant to be quite tough and independent and they had Kathleen Turner basically standing on high heels sticking her butt out flirting with men. And it's like, come on, you've got Kathleen Turner, you can do better than this, you know? Um, but this is, it's, she's a private detective. She's, um, she kind of specializes in white collar cases. I think she's got a law degree, so she's very intelligent, but she's very, very tough. This is based in Chicago, and Chicago is a you know has got a lot of tough neighborhoods. Um, I think you'd be looking for a central character who's obviously an attractive female film star, and I think there's a big market out there for a female film star to actually get a movie that that's supported, you know. Um, but it doesn't depend on being all sexualized and glamorous, which is like partly the mistake the first film made. So you're looking for someone who can tread that line, but. Look at what look at what an untapped market like the female kind of audience and the female stars are. I think this generally works. And also because this is like good tough crime thrillers, this is like this can be for everyone, but will I open up to a wide audience? My first concern on this was that 
private detective, detective shows, it's very easy to, to push this into a bracket marked TV show and aimed at older audiences. Like everything from fucking Hawaii Five O to NCIS to, you know, Criminal Minds. That, that it is, it does pitch towards an older audience. And we had this whole bit at the start of this pod about what does Gen Z want to watch. But I, I, I think make these into good action thrillers is what you do. So yes, she's a private detective, but it's not really a procedural detective story. She takes cases, but all of the stories and all the books are kind of taking taking her out of her usual caseload and saying, here's some shit that's happened. And because it happens to her and because of her personal history, she she deals with it. And I think what you'd be doing with this story is similar to what they did with The Equalizer with Denzel Washington, which is to say, yes, the TV show is one episode, deals with a case, and then go on to the next episode. In The Equalizer, they've taken the, the idea of a retired CIA agent who helps people and made an action movie out of it. And I think what we're talking about here is a crime action thriller about a woman who is equipped for this sort of thing, and she gets taken away from a normal caseload. Someone's got a problem. Someone she knows is in trouble. And here's what you, here's you know here's how she kicks ass. She's um she's more about unarmed combat than she she's got a gun, but she's more about unarmed combat. She doesn't want to just go in and blow people away. So there will be some fighting required. Um, but there are some good storylines. Um, she's generally known as Vic in in the stories. A powerful banker's son has gone missing. Vic is hired to find him, but the client is lying to her, and the case is mixed up with organised crime, insurance fraud, and contract killings. She finds herself in more danger than the person who's been kidnapped. There you go. There's there's a straight up storyline for an action. You know, her cousin's the next hockey star, and her closest relative. He's been found dead in an apparent suicide. She goes in to investigate. So it's not your typical caseload. Um, Turns out he's been killed because of information he had on a criminal conspiracy uh, within the powerful shipping industry that operates in the Great Lakes of Canada. Now they want her dead. It's these kinds of things, right? And I think you could do similar to what they did with the Jack Reacher films. You could turn these into proper, uh, quite gritty action films. But I think do better than we do with Jack Reacher. I'm not talking about making these fucking 12A. Make these sort of quite you know, R-rated and harder-edged. Um, I do think there's a risk that this placed maybe an older audience, but I think Gen Z watched Collateral, right? So I'd be I'd be I'd be confident that with the right star, you get someone in and basically say, yes, you're a private detective, but this isn't a private detective show. This is a private detective who gets thrown into some shit and fights her way out. And you have the case and you have the revelations, you have the thriller who done it and everything else. But it's like the Jack Reacher films in which someone's ass has to get kicked to fix this, you know? Yeah. Um, are you interested? Yeah, it sounds sort of like... Remember when they did that TV show Bones, but it sounds like they were going to make it kind of grittier and with uh, like the forensic side of it and the investigative side of it, but with someone who's also just going to kick some ass. Yeah, I think you need to boil this down to action, to action thriller genre. And I know sometimes in films... You know, we were talking about like the Bosch novels. They take two of those and make a 10 episode series. So I think you have to kind of make a genuine effort to say this is a film, not a TV show. But some of the storylines are really good. You know, the, Mos- the Russian mob get involved. People are backing ISIS getting involved. Um, it, it lifts the lid on shady investment scams with like violent people covering up. All of that stuff can get made into a movie. Um, and here's the thing. I mean, uh, I'm going to I'm going to give you a shot at saying who you, who, who, who you would cast as a central character. Although I've got my own ideas. Who, who would you cast in something like this? You're looking for a... This has to be a star vehicle. This has to be people have, people have to turn out and see. Who would, who would you pick? Give me the age of the lead. She's late 30s, early 40s. Say late, say say mid to late 30s to begin with, because obviously if you're going to do these shows, you want them to kind of have a bit of runway ahead of them to make like 10 movies if you're really lucky, right? Or five at least. Okay. 
So, I think we go with Ch- Jessica Chastain. That's a, that's a name that, that, that I was thinking of. My, my pick was Scarlett Johansson. Okay, she's obviously got the more action side of things. Um, but you're definitely thinking along the same lines as me. Jessica Chastain is definitely a, you know someone I thought of as well. I pick, I pick Scarlett Johansson because she's just come off being a big star in the big movies, and it's like okay, yeah. where, where 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 do the where do the stars who've been made famous by the franchises go now that they're not in those franchises anymore? It's like what do you do with Chris Evans? What do you do with you know etc. And that's why yeah. I went Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, I think, and I think she lends herself well because there's a kind of action side of it that maybe Jessica Chastain hasn't done much of, if any. Yeah, but Jessica Chastain, she's recently won an Oscar and she's you know a big name as well. I mean, look, I'd 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 be happy with either of them, but I think you're looking at that, and I th- you're talking about a star vehicle that a, a female actor is going to want to get her teeth into, but which which generates some genuine like action thrills you know it's a crime thriller mystery but it's got you know but the it's you know it's an action film you know or there's enough action to to actually make it work um i just think this is a little bit risky because i think sometimes the the, the studios are going to say private detective that's for old people do you know what i mean but i think with a younger female star you could you could get you could pack them in with this and because the sarah Paretzka has written a ton of novels she's written she's written these been writing these novels for so long I mean, the first film adaptation of the child of this was 30 years ago. She's been writing these songs for so long they've had to retcon the central character's, you know, um, backstory so that she can still be the same age to make the films, to make the stories now. So it's, it's you know, there are up-to-date, you know, relevant stories and there's lots to draw and lots of storylines to pick from. Hear me out. This might be a left-field shout because they're not a massive star, but what about Danai Gurira? Interesting. You're obviously it's it's right it's uh, flipping the race of the main character, which I have no problem with, but I know would draw a little bit of um you know uh you know you'd get the usual right wingers kicking off. But watch for watch, England yeah. for England. Kind yeah, of but yeah, I think yeah. Dan Aguirre is fantastic. I think she's a great great character. She's got uh, better great, great action actor, credentials yeah. than all of the people we've mentioned. But yes. obviously, I don't know if she would have that draw because her biggest performances have been in Black Panther. And Avengers and Infinity she wasn't the War. biggest thing in them, right? Yeah, um, she's obviously got an important role in The Walking Dead, which was a massive. Look, massive she look, thing, she could definitely do it. She could definitely do it. And your safest bet, Scarlett Johansson, because Scarlett Johansson gets bums in seats. She's a leading actress. Yeah, um, you know she could handle a fight scene. No, that's an interesting idea, Dan Aguirre. I'd like, I like it. I like the idea of her. Very left field. Very very, very left field. I think you're. I think you're making a smaller movie with her. Not that that's a bad thing. I'm thinking about the budget. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, th- these are just our ideas. Please feel free to get in touch audience about, you know, ideas for a blockbuster. But really the idea is, is that I think if, if they want people to turn up for, for the big films, they need to, to give people something to something else. Cause what they've been giving them this year just hasn't been flying. Has it? No. Okay. Well, look, you've, you've pitched a, a big, a big franchise property, which is, you know, a high degree of difficulty, but would be fantastic if they if they pulled it off. I've gone a little bit more um, smaller scale, um, which comes with it. You know, they come with their own risks. The ideas that I've had, um, but you know, those are our ideas for new blockbusters. And wh- whatever else you think, wouldn't it be nice if the the films they were planning for next year, writers and actors strike notwithstanding, were 
something fresher than we've been getting. Hey. Yeah, I think just something new. And I know Red Dead Redemption, Red Dead Redemption is an existing franchise, but I think it, it would be different to video game adaptations because it's... Like, like Last of Us, it relies on a strong narrative, right? It relies on a strong narrative, but it also has a huge following. Like, I don't, like Rockstar games... So it's one of the most, best-selling games of all time, as I yeah, understand it. Ro- Rockstar games are just so... Everyone is absolutely just infatuated with them. Like when GTA Six comes out, I'm not even joking. I think it might make two billion dollars. Well, that sounds great. So, and they they're the people that do uh, uh, Red Dead. Yeah, it's right, Rockstar Games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Well, that's well, that's cool. Yeah, look, I'd love to see it. I'd love to see someone give it a try. Um, so, you're asking the studio to put a lot of money into an R-rated video game adaptation. <clears throat> Excuse me. I'm asking them to put a lot of money into the sort of thing that normally gets shown on TV, but they've got to try something different, right? Well, listen, thank you very much at home for listening. We'll have another big conversation for you next month. That's all for this month's episode of Double Reel. Thanks for listening and for making it all the way to the end. Thanks also to my co-host, James Adamson. The podcast was edited in Audacity and hosted on Spotify. We are grateful for their continued support. The music was Mistake the Getaway by Kevin MacLeod. Outside of Double Reel, you can find us both hosting a non-film related podcast, The Adamson's Verses. Our most recent episode, The Adamson's Verses Stories from the Campfire, is out now and will bring you a new episode soon. So this is me, James Adamson, signing off and... This is me, James Adamson, signing off. Our next episode will be our regular episode 41 next month. Keep an eye out for any special episodes we decide to do in future. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and tell your friends. Until next time, stay safe, watch lots of films, and may your life be as awesome as you pretend it is on social media. And don't wear prosthetic noses. <laughs> Niche reference there, but if you're reading the film news headlines, you'll know what he means. Yeah, they're, they're reading the film news. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs>